0: Hey, how are you doing? Um, I'm Ewan, and welcome to MSG 10, where we invite a guest on to talk us through a movement, scene, or genre of music through 10 songs of their choosing. The brief is deliberately wide, so this could be about anything from 1970s feminist punk to African jazz or just their local alternative rock nightclub when they were a teenager. Before we get started, just to let you know, this is a Temp Fans production, so if you fancy spending longer on individual artists, our podcast Temporary Fandoms is where you can do just that. Also, if you fancy listening to this show and others on the network um, with the actual music we're talking about, head on over to our Cloud, and you can listen to this one for free, or subscribe if you want to support the shows and the artists we play. It's basically like a radio show, you know, how they used to be before we called them podcasts and weren't allowed to put music on them. Anyway, the artists get paid a fair whack. Um, All the links, plus Spotify playlists to accompany this, everything you need are in the doobly-doo episode notes thingy. Right. For today's show, we have, and I'm cribbing this from his own website, linguist, lexicographer, language columnist for the Wall Street Journal, contributing writer for The Atlantic, and uh, co-host of the rather excellent uh, Slate podcast, Spectacular vernacular, and more importantly, he's been on the Temporary Fandom podcast multiple times. It's Ben Zimmer. Hey, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you doing? Doing all right. Doing all right. Um. So, Ben, what are we doing today?
1: Uh, today, uh, we're gonna explore the Hoboken sound.
0: Um, it, it, just for listeners, obviously not for myself, because I'm fully aware of what this. And uh, Ben, what's a Hoboken? What is a Hoboken? Okay. <laughs> Well, Hoboken is
1: a town in New Jersey on the Hudson River, um, right across the Hudson from Manhattan. Um, and I, I guess if people know about Hoboken, they might know that you know Frank Sinatra is from there. If you've seen On the Waterfront, um, that takes place there. So it has a kind of rough and tumble uh, background with those you know dock workers and working class background. Um, but you know, it became this kind of musical mecca. Uh, starting in the late 70s and into especially the 1980s. And um, that was thanks uh, especially to a uh, nightclub uh, 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 that opened up called Maxwell's. And it was called Maxwell's because it originally catered to workers at the Maxwell House coffee factory nearby.
0: Uh, I guess. Quick, so. <laughs> quick question on that. All yeah. I know of Maxwell House, uh, as someone who grew up in the UK, is it was terrible instant coffee. <laughs> Please tell me that it's not only and has never just been terrible instant coffee.
1: Uh it it's never been the uh the the best coffee let's say but it, again it's sort of like it was it was a very very popular brand uh used to be at least um in in the US and yeah they they had this coffee factory there and apparently back back in the day you know the smell of coffee in Hoboken was kind of overpowering from the factory there.
0: Okay um also I I've watched 3 episodes of The Sopranos again today. <laughs> was any of The Sopranos in Hoboken? Uh not as I I can't recall uh
1: anything there may, there may have been something in Hoboken but but uh I live in Jersey City and there you can actually see some shots of uh Jersey City in the opening credits but you know Hoboken certainly by the time The Sopranos uh was being shot uh had beca- became very upscale, you know, it kind of lost the, the working-class roots. And again, even though Frank Sinatra was from there and had this kind of you know, Italian-American uh, working-class uh, background associated with it, um, starting in the 80s, you know, this is part of the Hoboken story. It becomes very gentrified as more of those New Yorkers come across the river.
0: Oh, So the, the, this Hoboken sound, this, this Maxwell's thing, this was before the gentrification. This was when it was still a, a working-class well, it starts oh, it, it starts that
1: way, yeah. But uh, yeah, over the course of the 80s into the 90s, <laughs> as Hoboken changes, um, it becomes a bit less hospitable to these uh, bands that get very interested in coming over. Because originally, uh, you know, it was a place to go where the rents were cheaper and you could get rehearsal space, you could set up a studio, you could set up a record label, and all of this was uh, uh, cheaper and easier to do than if you were in New York. But over time, Hoboken started to get uh, expensive and, you know, uh, it, you know, the, the, the typical story, uh, a lot of those people then just got priced out of Hoboken. So it, it, you know, by the eighties and nineties, it starts losing that appeal. Unfortunately,
0: um, when you, when you sent me the list of stuff we were going to look at for today, um, I did quick Google on quick Google, and I found this video called the Hoboken sound, which I, I did send. It's on YouTube. Just if you if you're listening right now, just have a look. The Hoboken sound. And if you open this video, and it looks like, what could only be described as the most horrific 1980s thing you're ever going to see in your life. (laughs) Um, I I couldn't believe that this place with these 80s suits and these 80s type bands, and basically it it was it's a restaurant with phones ringing and people running through. And so why was this special?
1: Yeah, it's funny. That that is a great time capsule. That uh hour-long documentary from 1985 on the Hoboken Sound, which ran on a local New York television station. Uh back when it seemed like the Hoboken Sound was gonna be the next big thing, or at least that's what some people thought at the time. Um, yeah, you know, I mean it, it centered on this club Maxwell's, and you know, from the from the outside you wouldn't think it was anything particularly special. Um it it did have in the front, this uh restaurant/slash tavern uh where you know people would eat what uh, I remember kind of uh sort of yuppie clientele being there. But if you work your way through the restaurant, you get to this back room. And when uh Maxwell's opened up in 1978, they decided that this this back room with like no circulation and just basically a box uh would become this performance space. And so that's where the bands play. And you know there was, a, there was a bar in the back, but if you wanted to uh, get a decent view, you had to try to work your way up front uh, and it would get very hot. And like I said, no circulation, which could be
0: a problem if people were smoking various substances. <laughs> uh, but- I'm, but I'm so, Okay, so, so on this, yeah. I mean, everybody who's listening, they've, got, they've probably got the club from their formative views. And I mean, I could spend 15 minutes talking about the Lord Raglan in Wolverhampton and I could describe <laughs> every smell. Every sound, where everything is. So, I'm going to ask you, if possible, from when the doors swing open and you go into that back room, what do we see? Where is everything? Paint us a picture, please, if you can. Sure. Ben.
1: Okay. And I, I should mention, I, I first went to Maxwell's in 1996, uh, back when I was actually uh, living in New York. Um, and, you know, they, they still had uh, great bands there. I went to see uh, Yola Tango. With special guests including the Feelies, we'll be talking about these bands because they were basically like the house bands at Maxwell's for many years. Um, but uh, it was always just the same same kind of box. They, it didn't, never really changed for as long as Maxwell's was around. And so, yeah, you would you would you would get through the door to the back room, and you would see on the left there would be the bar if you wanted to hang out there for a little while, and on the right was the stage, and that was basically it. You could there was like a raised part sort of on the left where you might be able to like wedge yourself against the wall to maybe get a better view. It was just this back room. Apparently, they they just had it as like a storeroom back in 1978. I mean, when Maxwell's just started out uh, with the, the owner, Steve Fallon, opening it up in 1978, he wasn't even using this back room for anything. And some friends of his who were in bands were looking for a place to play and rehearse. And he thought, OK, well, let's try making this a place where, where bands would play. And it developed this, you know, kind of mythical reputation over the years for this very unassuming back room. Um, you know, I I, I don't know what it is. Sometimes there's just something special about a particular space like that, which just seems like, you know, anything can happen in this space, you know, and, and bands were free to kind of play around and do things. And, and it didn't feel like, you know, there was a, a reputation you had to uphold or anything like that so much as just like bands. Doing what they wanted to, and often a kind of in a freeform way. And uh, bands where everybody kind of knows each other, and so like with Yola Tango shows, you might get the feelies showing up, and and you never know what might happen. Like there was this sense of adventure and surprise in this room.
0: Okay, well, I mean, we'll 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 talk a bit more about Maxwell's and the whole Hoboken sound in a bit, but this is probably a good time to get to your first choice, um, which is a band called the Feelies. I mean, I'm going to be honest. With you most of the bands today i had never heard of or at least never heard before in my life um coming from central uh uk uh growing up in the late 90s a band called the feelies could have existed in the 60s 70s 50s i don't know they could have been do Wop. i have <laughs> no idea so your first choice is what
1: Right, so we're starting with the Feelies, and we're actually starting with a recording that predates uh, Maxwell's, which I mentioned. You know, started in 1978, but the Feelies were around before then. They weren't from Hoboken; they were from uh, another town in northern New Jersey called Halden, which is about 20 miles away from Hoboken. Um, but they're kind of the the cornerstone, let's say, of of the the Hoboken sound. And if people are familiar with them, they may know they're amazing records starting with crazy rhythms which was from 1980 and it's a, it's a great record but but um one of my favorites but when it came out the new york cognoscenti like the village voice types were saying yeah oh this is this is good this is good but they're way better in concert you know they're the best live act in the new york area and um you know i wasn't around then you know to be well i was a very small child at the time i was not like going to clubs so I could only kind of piece together what did they sound, what did they really sound like when they were starting out, and there's this recording, their very first recording from 1977, um, and it's uh, the single was Fasela, La, a song they would later redo for that first album, Crazy Rhythms. But when they did it back in 1977, um, they did it for Ork Records, which was this label set up by a guy named Terry Ork, who was um, he was actually managing television. And you know, the band television and, and set up this label for television and Richard Hell. And he ended up recording the this this young band from New Jersey, the Feelies. And um, you know, the single never got released. And in fact, um, it wouldn't really see the light of day until this great box set that came out in twenty fifteen from Numero Group called Orc Records, New York, New York. You should you should uh, check that out for sure. Wait, wait,
0: wait. So his name is Terry Ork. Yes. And he lives in New York. <laughs> Correct. Um, okay, and the- <laughs> just check it. <laughs> I thought you were going to make a
1: Mork from Ork joke oh, about Mork and Mindy. No, 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 but, no, no.
0: In my brain, I just went, <laughs> New York, Ork. Um, okay, so, so what? What? I mean, we're going to listen to it anyway. But um, who would you say the Feelies most sound like? Because I still have no idea. Yeah. Well, at this
1: point, they sound a lot like Velvet Underground uh, in the kind of you know the the rave ups that you you hear from uh, Velvet Underground. Um, there's also some influence from the modern lovers for sure, bands like that. Um, you know, this is around the same time that uh talking heads are starting out. There's some kinship there as well. Um, but you know what you hear uh what you hear from this recording is this again jangly guitar sound um that owes a lot to uh the Velvet Underground, and but um also perhaps some some going back to some British invasion groups like the Kinks. Um, and so that became kind of a, a hallmark of what we're calling the Hoboken sound. Um, but it's interesting too, because if you if you compare this to what they would later do uh, with that first album, Crazy Rhythms, they kind of pare all of this down for the for the album, make it sparse and minimalist. And in, in fact, they actually wanted Philip Glass to uh, produce their first album. Really? Yeah. But uh, but I think that this first uh, recording that they made for Ork Records, that Fa La single, is Sort of like the Rosetta Stone for trying to understand this whole scene.
0: Okay, well, um, probably probably a good time to listen. If you're listening to this on your pod player, you'll realise there are no tunes. If you want the free version with all the songs we're talking about, that's mixcloud.com slash tempfans because of copyright reasons, etc. Or there's a Spotify playlist in the show notes. Okay, Ben, so if if, if the feelies were this sort of... Hoboken, New Jersey stalwart from the 70s onwards. Um, did they ever really break Manhattan?
1: Well, the Feelys actually got their start playing clubs in Manhattan before uh, Maxwell's even opened. Um, so uh, starting in 77, 78, um, they were playing the, you know, the sort of the more famous Manhattan club. So people will know about CBGBs, of course. I mean, that's where it's sort of the New York punk scene got underway where, you know, bands like Ramo- the Ramones and television and, and Blondie and Talking Heads and all the rest, you know, those CBGB bands that were sort of, that was the hip place to be. There were other hip spots uh, uh, in Manhattan, like Max's Kansas City or the Mud Club. Um, and so those were the kind of the, the Manhattan uh, places to to, uh, to be if you, were, if you were into sort of punk and post-punk music. So when Maxwell's opened up, again starting in 1978, but you know, really kind of getting going by around 1980, um, you know, it, it was kind of an alternative to all of that. But it, it was uh it was perhaps not, not quite as hip uh as those Manhattan places. And you did have to, you know, take a 10-minute train ride, the path train that goes under the Hudson River uh to get there. And it was a definitely kind of a different vibe from Manhattan. Um so yeah, I mean, if you think about like the the sort of the hipper experimental bands of the 80s, like Sonic Youth, for instance. Sonic Youth would play Maxwell's, but they were definitely more associated with New York. And so what developed uh, with the Feelys and other bands in Hoboken uh, were, you know, you know, they were perhaps not quite as uh, hip and happening, but they had a kind of like earnest energy to them, let's say.
0: So would you say there was a... Gen- was it one of these classic snobbery things where there's a really cool scene... In the big city, and then there's the working class neighborhood nearby, and it, and it probably didn't matter what the musical output was. It wasn't Manhattan. It was over the river in, in working class New Jersey. Do you think there was this classic sort of snobbery thing going on? Uh, to some
1: extent, I I would say so. Yeah, I mean New Jersey is uh, you know I'm from New Jersey. I live in Jersey City, which is right near Hoboken. Um, still to this day, New Jersey kind of uh, has that inferiority complex, or you know. Uh, the, the you know, compared to, say, Manhattan, even if you're just right across the river from it. Um, these days, of course, there have been so many New York transplants that have come over to Hoboken and Jersey City that uh, they they almost feel like they're extra boroughs of New York, uh, if at least if you're in the sort of the downtown area along the water. Um, so, you know, uh, I would say, yeah, if we go back in time to the 70s and 80s when this was starting out, there was more of a distinction, more of, you know, even if it was a short train ride. There was kind of a cultural distance between these two places.
0: Okay, well, this is probably a good time to, to move on. Um, we're, <laughs> you probably don't know this, but during the eight, 1980s in the UK, there was a, a soft drink, a fruit juice carton drink called um, Umbongo. And the advert was Umbongo, Umbongo, they drink it in the Congo. And so um, when you sent me the list and I looked at the name of the next track, I have to say I haven't been able to get this uh, TV commercial jingle out of my head all day. And um, what we're we going to be looking at now, listening to, so what we're we going to be listening to now,
1: right? This is the Bongos with their 1980 song "In the Congo." Uh, yeah. So uh, I mentioned I mentioned that when Hobo the Hoboken Club, uh, Maxwell's started off in 1978, it was just. Uh, a bunch of friends kind of getting together friends of the of the club owner steve fallon and um it was a band called a just the lowercase letter a just just the letter a
0: yes uh so great band a, a classic example of world before search engines exactly um where bands <laughs> like the the and a would need to really think think about things
1: <laughs> right so three of the four members of that band a um that would be Richard Barone, Frank Giannini, and Rob Norris ended up um forming this band called the Bongos and um they started getting buzz as as a Hoboken band actually um starting up in 1980 but you know they weren't actually at that point able to get their music out on an American label but they got interest from a a a British label called Fetish Records which I guess Hoboken sounded exotic to them. So it was the Bongos from Hoboken. Uh, and so they put out uh their their first album, which was called Drums Along the Hudson. Um again, combining the the uh you know Congo imagery with the Hoboken imagery a little there. And you know, what you would hear on that is is you know kind of straight-up guitar-driven power pop and um the kind that seems like it could reach a, a popular commercial audience even though that never quite worked out for the bongos. They did end up signing to RCA. They got videos on MTV, but, um, you know, they, they, they ended up fizzling out. But they, it's, it's really interesting to hear, you know, starting from 1980, the music that they were making in this kind of power pop tradition that I think has aged pretty well.
0: Okay, so so we're in the early 80s. Um there's a couple of Hoboken bands with with names that either remind me of, of TV commercials or um, are just letters. Um, but we're going to move on to we're going to move straight on to the third track now. Um, and a band called the DBs. Again, another band I had never heard of before before you sending this through, but there's quite a lot going on in there, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the DBs actually have their roots in the South in um North Carolina actually. Um and uh there're just a bunch of bands that start off around Winston Winston Salem, North Carolina. Um there's one early one called Rittenhouse Square. Um and so these, wait, wait, that's a that's that's a band. Yes, there's a, an early, you know, 70s power pop band called Rittenhouse Square.
0: Good and- name. Good name. Well, you sent me some <laughs> notes to it. And I skimmed through and I thought, oh, that's where they come from. And now I'm realizing I misread it. And it's not where they come from. It was the name of one of their bands.
1: Right, exactly. And so this had Chris Dame, Peter Holsappel, and a fellow named Mitch Easter, who would later become famous for producing the early REM albums. Um, so um, they also uh, hook up with a drummer named Will Rigby. They form another kind of uh, seminal power pop band called Sneakers. Um, Eventually, Chris Damey decides to, to move up to New York. Um, he starts playing uh in Alex Chilton's band, Alex Chilton of Big Star. So Big Star obviously is, wow. a, is a key influence for this whole scene. Um, and he manages to convince his friends to uh to come up north. You know, Will Rigby comes up, um, they get Gene Holder, eventually uh Holes comes up too. And they form this band called The DBs, which, as their first album explains, stands for decibels. Um and uh they actually just are attracted to Hoboken when they're there and they say yeah we'll, we'll just hang out here with you know there seems like a cool music scene developing here um and so Hoboken Hoboken becomes the kind of the home base for the DBs and um you know uh, again they had trouble getting attention from american record labels somehow the british labels were more interested in this type of of music or maybe they heard something uh, that, uh, American ears weren't quite attuned to. Um, and there were certainly British bands, um, you know, I mean, if you think about the soft boys, you know, Robin Hitchcock, that were definitely kind of in that same kind of vein. Um, and so, uh, you know, the DBs would end up touring in the UK and they, they signed to a British indie label called Albion. Um, and, uh, the song amplifier first appeared on an EP from Albion in 1981. And then again on, uh, Repercussion, which was their album in 1982, and uh, it's it's a really interesting song. It's a very kind of um, catchy, melodic song about a guy who's driven to suicide by a woman who leaves him and takes everything except for his amplifier. Um, and there was there was even a, a video that they made uh, for MTV where uh Saple, the singer, was had like you know singing with a noose around his neck and all this stuff. And MTV, apparently they played it a few times, but then they backed off on it because at the time there was all this stuff about how, you know, young people listening to certain kinds of music might be so influenced by it, they might kill themselves. And so uh, Amplifier, the video, never caught on the way that perhaps it should have. Um, And, you know, the DBs never really found that commercial success, even though they were touring with R.E.M. and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, th- this, is, this is interesting. I mean, you can hear the, the commercial appeal of a song like this, um, but, you know, it never really translated into sales.
0: Um, so,
1: so, Ben, what happened to A? Right, so that first band that played at Maxwell's A, like three-fourths of them became the Bongos, and then the, the other guy from A was named Glenn Morrow, um, and uh, he formed his own band called The Individuals, and it didn't really stick around as long as some of these other Hoboken bands. Um, they, they ended up putting out an EP in 1981 called Aquamarine and then an LP called Fields in 1982. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't really put out anything more than that. Uh, Glenn Morrow ended up um, starting another band called Rage to Live. And he also got involved in a, a record label called Bar None. Uh and that was a label that got its start in the basement of a Hoboken record store called Pier Platters. So, I mean, this kind of gives you a sense of what Hoboken was like at the time. You know, you could just start up a record label in the basement of the record store. Um, there was rehearsal space, there was a, a recording studio that people used called Water Music. I was all kind of right there in Hoboken. You could just sort of walk. From street to street and find all of this stuff. And everybody kind of knew each other and was helping each other out.
0: Um, I think that's probably the one of the unifiers as well. I mean, a lot of people listening to this, well, probably most people listening to this will be listening because they go, oh, Hope and I like the Hope book and sound. But there's an awful lot of things where you might not know a music scene. You might not have known that scene here in the 70s or that scene here in the 80s. But you know your scene, you know scenes like that. You have your own version of Maxwell's. You have your own version of Pia Platter's, the record store. Um, most people can probably picture it, even if not picturing it exactly how it was. Um, OK, so, so that's going to move us into the track by the individuals.
1: Yeah, this one is called My Three Sons Revolve Around the Earth, and it's from their LP from 1982 called
0: Fields. <laughs> Okay so um Ben um so by this time what early 80s um was Hoboken and Maxwells and this this dingy back room of this diner/restaurant full of yuppies um making a name for itself were, were people outside Hoboken becoming aware of Hoboken
1: Yeah it it was getting this reputation and uh bands that came through the New York area would often want to play at Maxwells you know and sometimes it would be their first stop for a band that was just uh, starting off, and interestingly enough, that included British bands. So, uh, Joy Division, w- uh, was going to uh, have a U.S. tour, uh, before Ian Curtis uh, offed himself, and that tour was supposed to start at Maxwell's. Uh, when they had to, uh, you know, reorganize as New Order, New Order still kept that gig and played at Maxwell's as their first, their first, their first concert in the U.S. Um. You know, that that wasn't necessarily typical of, uh, you know, the bands that would come through Hoboken and play at Maxwell's. You would more typically get a band like R.E.M. coming up from Athens, Georgia. And there were there were other bands like that. Um, If you think of all those bands that are profiled in that great Michael Azarad uh, book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. Think of The Replacements. Think of Husker Du. Think of The Minutemen. These were the types of bands that would just want to play Maxwell's when they, when they came through and, and, and often would at that, at that time.
0: Um, yeah, and th- I think having venues like that is always, it's always welcome, particularly if you're growing up somewhere. Um, I mean, I grew, up in a, I grew up in a place called Wolverhampton, in, which is in the middle of the UK, and it was brilliant growing up there in the 80s and 90s because every band played the Wolfren Hall on the way up. Every band played the Civic before they got massive and so you caught everybody everybody came through there. and there's and there are there are tales of these these legendary clubs in Wolverhampton back in the 70s where Thin Lizzy would come and play you know and, and and stuff like that so having something like this um you can see why people would get attached to it and feel protective of it particularly when all the bands are coming to you you don't have to go I mean I don't know how you get over to New York I'm guessing there's some form of metro train covered in graffiti, right? I've seen 80s movies. Um, not having to get on the graffiti covered metro to go to, to Manhattan, the bands are coming to you. And that and that's, that's really cool. Um, so you mentioned, you mentioned um, the Azarad book, um, but also um, another one probably worth mentioning is the Jesse Jarnow one. That's right, Jesse
1: Jarnow who joined us for the Temporary Fandoms uh, uh, podcast episodes about Yola Tango wrote the book about Yolatengo called Big Day Coming, Yolatengo and the Rise of Indie Rock. And it's not just about the band Yolatengo, but about this whole indie rock scene that developed and why, you know, Maxwell's was important, why, you know, this kind of network formed. And what's interesting is you can really see like how all of these musicians um, who might've shared a similar outlook, if not the s- uh, same sound, um, just found common ground in places like Maxwell's. And um, it would often develop uh, certain uh, connections between different parts of the United States. So I mentioned that the DBs uh, came from North Carolina and settled in New York and then, set, and then came to Hoboken and made that their, their home base. Well, because of that, there was this connection with these bands from the South. Um, so Mitch Easter, who I mentioned before, you know, uh, who, who would go on to produce R.E.M., uh, he had his own band called Let's Active and, which which uh, I am
0: going to interject, and yes. you I, I'm assuming you feel the same way, but there has been a, a thing over the last few years, particularly in adverts, where they do go, let's joy, or, um, <laughs> yes. you know, this sort of marketing of adjectives and nouns in the wrong place, and I saw the word let's active, and I went, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes, well, this was back in the early 80s before it had any of those bad connotations with annoying commercials. But yeah, so Let's Active was Mitch Easter's band. He starts it off again in, in Winston-Salem, where where he is. And um, you know, he uh he was not a he was not part of the Hoboken scene exactly, but he was bringing this band Let's Active with Faye Hunter and Sarah Ramwaiver up to Maxwell's and they played up there a lot. So I I'm considering them a, an honorary Maxwell's band. They certainly shared in that kind of jangly aesthetic, the guitar driven um, kind of power pop sound. Um, and, you know, I, uh, Mitch Easter, I guess, will always be best known for those REM albums that he produced. Um, uh, there was Chronic Town, there's Murmur, there's Reckoning. Um, but at the same time, he was making this great music and, and it deserves some attention. So uh, I picked Every Word Means No. Uh, from uh, the 1983 EP "A Foot" from Let's Active.
0: Okay, Ben. So um, we started we started this list with the band that I assume, as as you said, almost like the house band, the Feelies. And your next choice is another or or, or one of the Feelies offshoots, right?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, uh, the Feelies put out this amazing album in 1980 called Crazy Rhythms. They seemed like they were, you know, moving on up. And then they decide, you know what? Let's just break up for a while. Um and they did this a few times, you know, over the course of the the career. They just, you know, they're kind of on their own wavelength. They just want to do their own thing. And so, uh after Crazy Rhythms, the Feelies broke up, but then the band's kept very busy with all of these different side projects and very often they're playing with, you know, uh, members of the feelies or their friends um, to form new bands. And these bands would also, you know, typically play at Maxwell's. It would just be, Oh, there's a new band. What is this called? It's called the tripes spelled T R Y P E S. It's like, well, that sounds sort of like a sixties a psychedelic band. I wonder what that's about. Well, it's just the feelies basically. Um, just trying, just trying something else. And um so yeah, I mean it was it was a way to kind of experiment, try some new sounds. So the Feelies went in a kind of a soft psychedelic direction with The Tripes. Um and uh so it's interesting too because Glenn Mercer and Bill Million they're like the the, the core of the Feelies. Um but then with this project called The Tripes, they they bring in some new members and they end up becoming members of the next incarnation of the Feelies. So um brenda souder who who has the vocals on this uh tripe song we're going to listen to from the morning glories um stan Demeski, dave weckerman they kind of become part of the feelies orbit just from again just playing at maxwell's and um, and yes. you know everybody playing with everybody else and this is how these things so form I mean, organically
0: <laughs> without so you said that these bands sort of form organically and there's a lot of bands that um have spin-offs from each other and members from this band are also in this band and they're all sort of working together. And you hear this a lot from a lot of sort of scenes, like Elephant Six scene as well. Right. A lot of the bands sort of did that. Um how much of that do you think happened on stage? As in, oh you're here, do you want to come and play bass? Let's do a thing tonight. And then that became a band or was it all let's get together, try something and then we'll go on stage? Do you think it ever happened organically in yeah, from, Maxwell
1: from from what I could see, again, from going to Yola Tango shows, I mean, people would were, you know, uh, hopping up on stage all the time. And 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 so I think that uh, uh, just because so many of the bands uh, were just around, you know, even if they weren't living right in Hoboken, they were around and coming to Maxwell's. And yeah, Maxwell's would be a place to try things out, to experiment. And so, you know, when the Feelies decided to try this uh, offshoot that they called the Tripes, I'm sure that that kind of got going on the stage at Maxwell's and they're like, okay, how about you guys join in and then let's put out a record. And because Steve Fallon, uh, the, uh, the owner of Maxwell's, had set up his own record label, Coyote, it was easy enough to do that. So, you know, the Tripes put out uh, an EP in 1984 on Coyote Records. And uh, yeah, our track from The Morning Glories comes from that EP. <laughs>
0: Um, so just before the last track, you 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 mentioned Yola Tango and Yola Tango also being a band that I know that, that you love and they're the ones, maybe the big band for you from from this scene. Um our next track is one of the well, very early Yola Tango tracks, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I decided to go with the, their very first recording so you can hear how from the very beginning they were definitely part of this, you know, jangly uh hoboken scene. They would, of course, branch out into all sorts of interesting directions, very eclectic in their tastes and influences. But it's always kind of the bedrock is this jangly sound, which owes a lot to the Velvet Underground and, you know, bands like that. And, uh, and so this is what they were coming out of. And it's not surprising because, you know, Ira Kaplan and Georgia Hubley, uh, the, the couple that's at the, the center of Yola Tango, they met at a Philly's concert on the 4th of July in 1980 at Maxwell's. Um they, you know, became a couple, they they moved to Hoboken. Um Ira was was a sound guy at Maxwell's, Georgia would sometimes DJ there. They they try different bands out with different different uh musicians until they settle on Yola Tango, play their first gig at Maxwell's in 1984. And then the following year is when we hear their first recording, which was um a single called River of Water. And they put it out just on their own label. They just created their own label called Egon, E-G-O-N. And, um, and, you know, if you're finding this on Spotify, you'll find it as a bonus track that's included in their first album, which is called Ride the Tiger, which was on the Coyote label, that label we talked about from Steve Fallon of Maxwell's. So, you know, you can get a sense that they were very much in the middle of all of this uh, early on. And, um, and you know, it, it forms a big part of uh, their their whole sound. And I encourage people to listen to our temporary fandoms uh two parter on uh Yola Tango to uh, get more into that if you're interested.
0: Fantastic. And so this would be River of Water from 1985. Um so Ben, um obviously we're talking about um a scene that that, that you know and obviously you love and you're you're obviously passionate about. Um but we are covering a lot of tracks from the eighties. Um I I think the next track is 1987. I was 13, maybe.
1: I was was 16 in in 1987. Yeah, I
0: was before
1: before I was going to clubs, before I had even heard of Maxwell's. So yeah, I mean, a lot of this is just kind of retrospective for me. Just, you know, I, I found out about Maxwell's later when, you know, after college and I was living in New York and, you know, there was all of this talk about like the heyday of Maxwell's back in the 80s and that got me interested in hearing you know those older yeah. uh albums by the feelies and so um, forth.
0: I mean as as a question um coming from someone from the UK obviously I'm aware that the drinking age in the US is always higher than it was in the UK but when I was 16 I was just starting to sneak into my local alternative indie clubs and and with 5 pounds drinking three pints of Probably cider at the time, um, watching local band The Sankings Kings and going home. Um, are 16 year olds, were 16 year olds able to sneak in at this point, or did you have to wait till you were 19, 20, 21?
1: Well, I mean, where I grew up, it was not, it was a part of New Jersey that had no clubs or anything like that anywhere near it. So I, I didn't have any real firsthand experience of this. But I did, I did later hear, you know, that from college friends, that sort of thing, who lived in, you know, major cities that uh that you know there was a lot of that sort of sneaking into clubs, or very often you know all ages clubs you know like the the history of the d c hardcore movement and straight edge with uh with a minor threat starts off as like kids who who were too young to get in except on for all ages shows, so yeah, there was definitely that scene happening in various clubs uh in the eighties, but uh it wasn't my particular scene until
0: until I was a bit older okay well let's let's go. Back to your eighth choice, um which is surely by the band
1: young Young woo yes, and you know if again, if you're coming to maxwell's uh at the time and you saw oh there's a band called young woo y u n g w u uh that's playing and you'd be thinking, what is that well it's another Feelies offshoot because <laughs> the, hey, <laughs> they were just very productive and like kept like forming new bands with new names and be, you know, people would be interested to see them. So in this case, um, if you ever go to a Feelies show, there's this tall, quiet guy named Dave Weckerman, and he's the guy playing uh, you know woodblocks or playing cowbell or playing tambourine. Seems like perhaps you know not an important role, but actually for the Feelies sound, those crazy rhythms. Uh, you really need the, the wood blocks and the cowbell. That 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 is definitely part of their sound. So, so
0: is he is he quite a, a sort of quiet, unassuming, just yeah. hitting this percussion, or is he sort of hitting the percussion?
1: Well, I mean, he really gets into it, but at the same time, he's just you know, he, he's just playing these these percussion instruments, not like a wild man, I would say. But but what Young Wu was, it was an opportunity for Dave Weckerman to become the front man of the Feelies, and um, in his particular style, and so he was able to kind of let it all out. Um, as Young Woo. Um, and so they put out an LP in 1987, again on Coyote Records, um, called Shore Leave. And this was, uh, you know, between the Feelys, I believe their second and third albums is when this came out. So another one of these breaks that they were having, and they were like, okay, let's be Young Woo for a little while. Um, and over the years, they would they would reform sometimes as Young Woo, or, you know, I, I think maybe they would have the Feelies play and then come back as Young Wu, which just meant Dave Weckerman came to the front and played his songs.
0: Often there becomes uh, a title of a song that I think transcends the band itself. Um, I'm aware of the replacements. I'm aware who they existed and of their place. In music, it's, they're never really some, someone I've listened to. Um, but the words left of the dial, I know from compilations. Um, a friend of mine has a radio program in Ireland called Left of the Dial. And Left of the Dial is the name of the next track.
1: Yeah, um, the replacements, obviously, they came from Minneapolis. They were not a Hoboken band. But they came through and played Maxwell's a lot. Um, in the years when they were this sort of legendary live act, which would often be completely shit-faced when they played, but were still amazing. (laughs) Uh, And um, it's great because uh, there is actually, um, you know, a recording um, that was bootlegged quite a lot um, uh, from those days, from 1986, um, that actually got put out in 2017 on Rhino Records. They officially released this live album of The Replacements playing in 1986. So this was a year after Tim came out. And Tim has that wonderful song, uh, Left of the Dial, on it. And um, this is also um, right before Bob Stinson left. Bob Stinson was the original guitarist, contributed a lot to their sound. Um, And uh, it's interesting. Actually, if you go on YouTube, you can find the soundcheck for this Maxwell's um, concert that they played in 1986. And the camera kind of zooms in on Bob Stinson playing guitar with his six string. And it's really great. Um, You know, unfortunately, you know, this is a very dysfunctional band. He left uh, later that year, but, um, but this, this, uh, this great um, recording from 1986 captures them at Maxwell's where, you know, like I said, they often played and it was just sort of part of the, the circuit that they were that they're in, and, and, and you know you mentioned that left of the dial has this kind of resonance. Well, um, that comes out of the idea that uh, if you were going to hear an indie band um, on the radio, you would find it on the left side of the radio dial in the lower numbers, right?
0: Wait, wait, wait. Is this AM or FM?
1: FM, sorry. So, okay, yeah, so
0: so, 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 the, the, so the local ones had the lower numbers, the 88s, right. the 87s, the 89s. Yeah and yeah yeah basically whatever that
1: is up up through like ninety ninety one, typically that would be where you would find and you know for instance WFMU which is in Jersey City and has a lot of connections to the Maxwell scene like Yola Tango, uh, our friend Jesse Jarno is a DJ there you know that's right there you know at ninety one for instance so so uh, left of the dial would be the you know the place where you might find these bands actually playing on the radio you certainly wouldn't find them in sort of the top forty stations or or anything like that. So-
0: see, see that. See, that is fascinating to me, because in the UK, I think, I think Radio 4 is right at the left of the dial, mm-hmm. if I seem to remember. You had Radio 4, local radio stations, maybe Radio 5, which was the sport and news. Now, there wasn't this sort of, to the left is uncharted local stuff. Right. The national ones were, were spread out as far as they could get, so this idea that you go over here into the lower numbers to get the cool stuff. Um, It's something I'd never realized before. Well, there you go.
1: And so um, Paul Westerberg in this song is singing about an encounter with a woman that he met on the road when he's touring, uh, a woman playing in another band. And, um, you know, there's this great line, pretty girl keep growing up, playing makeup, wearing guitar, one of my favorite lines from the uh, replacement song. Uh, Paul Westerberg later revealed he was singing about Lynn Blakey, who toured with Less Active in the Cheesters band at the time. So it all, it all fits together here. Um, so yeah, you know, he's just hoping to 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 find her left of the dial, like maybe maybe he'll hear her playing there, um, since you know he, he doesn't know how else he's going to reach her. Um, so it's this, it's this kind of a love letter to like indie music and that whole scene. It's you know, really wonderful song, one of my favorites from them. and uh, but it's funny though, in this recording from 1986 when they're playing at Maxwell's, uh, Paul Westerberg he's singing. Passionately singing the song, but at the end, he just fucks it up. He just, he just it's, like, it's like building to this climactic moment, if you know it from Tim from the album, um, where he says, I find you left of the dial. And then he just stops singing, and the whole song kind of descends into chaos. But that was the replacements. That's what you, you might get if you went to Maxwell's to see the replacements. It might be incredible, amazing, and it's all <laughs> gelling, and then it all
0: falls apart immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Okay, so we're going to be moving on and we're going to be sadly approaching our last record. But while we've lived in the 80s or 70s and 80s for the first nine, we're going to be taking a massive jump uh, to our final track, which is 2010. Um, And it's Yola Tango with, well, with Jeff Tweedy.
1: Yeah, so, you know, Yola Tango uh, continued to be like, you know, the regular band there uh, in Hoboken. 80s, 90s, into the 21st century. And they started doing a very cool thing that, that became a, uh, a great tradition starting at Maxwell's in 2001. And that was they would play the eight nights of Hanukkah every year. Um, and all proceeds would go to char- charity. They would have uh, a comedian come on, an opening band, and then they would play. And there'd always be various special guests. But none of it was ever announced ahead of time. You had to just sort of buy your ticket for one of the eight nights of Hanukkah and just see who might be playing. And you know, very often it was, you know, bands from this Hoboken scene, but also the the much wider uh scene um where people, you know, might might be might be coming in. You might get Alex Chilton one night. You might get uh Jeff Tweedy from Wilco on another night. Um and so uh there is a recording of this which, you know, I I thought would be appropriate to play. Um, You know, to get a sense of what this was like, because, again, this was my formative experience with Maxwell's was going to these Hanukkah shows Um, and they kept doing them um, from uh, 2001 all the way until 2012. I actually was at the last Hanukkah show they had at Maxwell's before um, the uh, then owner, uh, Todd Abramson, decided to uh, close Maxwell's down in
0: 2013. So Maxwell's is gone.
1: Well, it kind of still exists after 2013. There's like new owners who try to keep it going for a few years. It d- is not the that, same Maxwell. It does, never, does not work.
0: No, that never works. I so remember we, could... we the our the club we went to was the dirtiest, smelliest, stickiest, smokiest wonderful indie alternative nightclub. But the floors were so sticky that the lights the spotlights down didn't even leave a circle on the ground <laughs> and when uh the guy who ran it vince sold up um, the new owners took over it And about six months later they decided to open up an alternative night on a thursday and we went back this once once and we spent the first 10 minutes putting our feet on the floor and lifting them up and wondering why why our feet weren't sticking to the floor and this is a bit too clean and Where's the atmosphere gone? And exactly. music's not quite the same. Yeah, yeah, you can never recapture it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah,
1: so Maxwell's kept going, kind of in name only, until I think 2018, and now it's it's really gone uh, for good. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I I just still remember these uh, Hanukkah shows um, that you know ran through 2012. Um, after Maxwell's closed, uh, Yolotengo took a f- took a few years off from doing that, and then actually started doing Hanukkah shows at a club in manhattan called bowery ballroom they're still doing that it's unclear whether we'll have hanukkah shows this year they still haven't announced that yet um but i actually do have tickets to see yola tango at a club here in jersey city right near hoboken uh and this you know this is near where i live it's called white eagle hall i mentioned todd abramson who had been you know uh co-owner of of uh maxwell's at the end there uh he's now booking shows at this place, White Eagle Hall, in Jersey City. And I've seen the Feelies there. Uh, they're still going. And, you know, Todd Abramson's still booking them there. And uh, Yola Tango, and, you know. So four decades later, basically, these bands are still going and still sound really good. And White Eagle Hall is a very nice venue, actually. But it lacks uh, that kind of claustrophobic charm of Maxwell's back in the day.
0: <laughs> um, is there a, I mean, I, there was a Hoboken sound and the, it seemed to be big in the seventies and eighties carried through the nineties and obviously things were still happening in the noughties, but it, is there a newer generation of bands coming through or is that sort of it's over now? And it's those bands. Are, yeah, there's not, I mean, there's it's not... pretty
1: much over now. I mean, again, you've got bands like the Feelys and Yola Tango still playing, still sort of, uh, you know, keeping the fire going, but but in terms of something you might label the hoboken sound i mean that that you know refers to this this older generation let's say and again i mean a lot of that is just because hoboken is a different place now um and uh there is this sort of you know vital center where you know, of young up and coming struggling bands uh, hanging out with each other so you know that's changed and obviously the music scene itself has changed so much so it's it's actually kind of nice to you know that there are still these um you know tentacles or whatever you know there are still these connections back to that era if you go see the feelies or go see La Tango I recommend uh, both But those bands they 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 still put on a heck of a show um and uh you know it 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 reminds you of that scene um which you know again like I I wasn't there for the real heyday of it and yet it's still going um all these years later um and so yeah like an uh you know just that you get a sense of what it was like and how it may have influenced bands since then that, that sort of play that style of music, even if the Hoboken sound per se is kind of a relic at this point.
0: Okay, so we're going to finish off on Yoda Tango with Jeff Tweedy and Eight Day Weekend.
1: Yes, yeah, so Eight Day Weekend is, is a cover of uh, a Gary US Bond song, which is called Seven Day Weekend. So they just took Seven Day Weekend and they made it Hanukkah themed by calling it Eight Day Weekend and changing the lyrics a little bit
0: that makes so much more sense to me because when i was trying to find this track earlier on i realized it was on a, a db's compilation yes and it was like a, a christmas compilation yeah that's and my that's brain wasn't wrote... computing and i was like <laughs> wait what's going on that's <laughs> right
1: it, it appeared on a on a, a compilation credited to the db's and friends called christmas time again um and yeah it's a hanukkah song on this christmas album <laughs>
0: Okay, so that was Yoda Tango featuring Jeff Tweedy, uh, Eight Day Weekend. And that was the 10th and sadly final um, song of the Hoboken Sound, as brought to us by Ben Zimmer. Ben, uh, thank you very much. Oh, thanks. uh, This this has been a
1: blast. I just wanted to say, because we finished up with a couple of live tracks recorded at Maxwell's, um, collectors are still sharing bootlegs of concerts of Maxwell's from their heyday back in the 80s. Um, If you're interested in this music, you should definitely check out themackenzietapes.com. That has a lot of uh, bootleg recordings from those days. And they're tapes from a former Maxwell's employee named uh, David McKenzie. And it's all curated by a DJ named Tom Gallo, who's a bit of a historian of the Hoboken sound. And you should also check out Tom Gallo's uh, site, Look At My Records. uh, And that includes... Uh even more playlists of the Hoboken Sound if you're in <gasps>
0: um, and yeah, I mean go and listen to go and listen to his and then come back to us next time for not the Hoboken Sound. Um okay, so please, if you have liked this show, um please leave a review, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, wherever you can. Um, or and tell your friends, follow us on social media, all the links. Are uh, in the episode notes, but you can find us wherever the temporary fandoms uh, social media accounts are. Uh, thank you ever so much again to Ben Zimmer for taking the time to share with us. Um, big thanks to Jonathan Fisher for our theme music. Thanks to you for listening to us. And hope you stick around for this season where we'll be covering things like uh, 70s Soul, um, No Wave, Post Punk, and much more. Take it easy. Yeah.